Well, good morning, and thank you, worship team. As I was standing back there, my mind went back two Easter's. Can you remember two Easter's ago? I was here. I was here, and I was looking at that camera, and uh, there's about 10 people here from uh, the worship team as we gathered, and thank you if you were on the other side of that camera someplace. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 17. If you're uh, using one of our Bibles here in front of you, it'd be page 798. Author and pastor John Ortberg uh, writes in one of his books about a pastor friend of his who worked for a church denomination in Minnesota, and one of his responsibilities was to travel sometimes to communities that didn't have churches and conduct funerals. And so often to get to those places, he would travel with the funeral director in the hearse, and they'd go and they'd conduct the the service, and then they'd they'd travel back. One time after a, a funeral... Uh, They were on their way back, and uh, it was a particularly long ride, and the pastor was feeling quite tired from the day. And so he asked his his friend who was driving, the the funeral director, it's empty in the back. Do you mind if I just take a nap back there? And uh, so so he did, and it was fine. And along the way back, they they stopped for gas. And this was in the days of the uh, full-service attendants who actually filled the gas for you. And so the, uh, the attendant is filling gas and is instantly freaked out to see a body laying in the back. Then the pastor woke up. <laughs> oh, good timing on the lights. <laughs> woke up and waved, and he said he'd never see a guy run so fast. <laughs> this morning we celebrate something that is impossible or true. It's crazy to think that the dead would raise, or it's absolutely the most amazing thing ever. And it started with Jesus and his resurrection. I'm convinced that uh, most of you here are convinced that Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, rose from the dead. But it could be here that you're here, and, and uh, you're not so sure about all of that. I just want you to know why it's so important. It's so important that Jesus rose from the dead because that's the only way you and I, all of us, know we're going to die. It's the only way we can know that we can live after this life. Only because he lives, as we just sang, is there eternal life. In Matthew 17, we're kind of picking up where we left off from our study last week. Jesus has been talking to his disciples somewhere in the last maybe six months of his earthly ministry. And he told them, he says, this is my purpose for coming. I came because I'm going to build my church. And what he meant by that is the family he would live with eternally. I came to build my church. And then he said, I need to die and rise again. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. And it really went over the heads of most of the disciples. But You see, he was saying that the only way he could gather his family together for an eternal life together would be if he died and rose again. 
So that's been in the conversation to this point. And I'm just going to uh, tell you, take, take you back to the verse just before chapter 17. So we're at 1628. Because Jesus says something puzzling. He says, I tell you the truth. Some who are standing here, there's, I assume, 12 disciples. Some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In their lifetime, they're going to somehow see the, the Son of Man, that was Jesus' name for himself, coming in his kingdom somehow. Well, the answer to that puzzle is by just keep reading, and we'll do that now the next nine verses. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, right? Three of the twelve. John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, the voice, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came up and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So it's kind of interesting. Something so big, so amazing was not to be told until Jesus actually rose from the dead. Jesus says don't tell anyone Partly because no one could understand that they had somehow seen a picture, a, a, a private preview of Jesus as he will appear in heaven. But Peter, James, and John were privy to this. But it would be so unbelievable, so impossible for them to try to tell anyone about this. But it's the foundation for why he would be the one who could say, I can give you eternal life. So what happened there on the mountain was, the word is transfigured. Uh, that's kind of, we call it the Mount of Transfiguration or something like that. But the Greek word is actually a word we might recognize, metamorphotha. We use the word metamorphosis to describe a, a caterpillar who becomes a butterfly. So you have the same insect becoming something Radically different, but it's still the same insect. And Jesus, likewise, was a totally normal-looking human being throughout those 30-some years on earth, except for this moment when he was metamorphotha. He was transfigured. And they got a glimpse of how Jesus will look in heaven, how we will see him in heaven. Face shone like the sun. So there's this intense brightness. Likewise, his clothes are white as light. Not, we say white as a sheet. This is white as, as light. Trying to look up into a, you know, one of those bright LEDs or something. And there appeared Moses and Elijah. Now, wait a minute. If, if, if the story seems preposterous to begin with, it's getting worse because 
Moses lived some 1,400 years before Jesus died and was buried. Elijah lived some 800 years before Jesus. He was the one that was, 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 was raptured, if you would, translated, taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot. So these are people who lived before. But this is important because Peter, James, and John, as they would experience this and later think of it, they have to realize they were talking to Jesus, whom they knew very well the last three-plus years especially, and right there was Moses and Elijah, and they were alive. They were conscious. They were there with Jesus on that mountain. If you ever needed proof that there is eternal life, Peter, James, and John, this would be it. It's not a vision. It's not a hologram. It's Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Now, Peter, if you know something of his uh, personality from the Gospels, um, he puts his foot in his mouth. This is one of those times. And he says something. Lord, it is good for us to be here if you wish. I will put up three shelters. You may have the word uh, tent or tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He's probably referring to, hey, I've got an idea. Let's do this like the Feast of Tabernacles. In the Old Testament, one of the three major Jewish feasts involved having, uh, they were commemorating the time they were, the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness and they lived in tents and they always kept moving on and so forth. So during this feast, they would set up these booths, tabernacles, tents, and do that. And somehow Peter thinks, we've we got to remember this one. This is so big. Let's, let's remember this. Let's, let's make this an event, Jesus. And then even after this is over, then maybe there'll be like, it can be like a museum display or something. And Luke records the same event, and he adds this little uh, statement or comment that's kind of funny. He didn't know what he was saying. He didn't know what he was talking about. We, we love Peter, I think, because he blurts things out without thinking. Anybody, anybody else? Yeah, we've all done that. So Jesus doesn't... It doesn't say he rolled his eyes in this situation, but he ignored the comment. He ignored it, and the reason was that this was not supposed to be an event in itself. This was a preview of the event, the resurrection glory. This is the fulfillment of chapter 16, verse 28. You will see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, meaning I am going to give you a private showing of my glory, what it will be like after I'm resurrected. That's when you can talk about this. So it's not only visual, though. Then God the Father speaks from heaven, this voice from heaven, audibly. And this, if the visual didn't settle it, the voice did. This is my son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So Jesus is, uh, is confirmed by the voice of the Father because everything that Jesus would do, his death and resurrection and what it would accomplish depended completely on who he was. If he was the good man or prophet that some people talk about, then this is, he can do nothing. But God the Father confirms he is my son. This, that's why the resurrection has significance. It's because of who Jesus is. If Jesus was just a man, then we're kind of wasting our time this morning here. Then, then the, the Easter bunnies and the chocolate and the, and the cardboard cutout bunnies would, would be adequate if Jesus was a man. But if he was God, 
If he was God, then your eternal destiny, what happens to you after you die, depends on him, depends on this. So on the way down the mountain, Jesus said, don't tell anyone until I die and I rise. Jesus was staking his entire purpose on his death, proven by his resurrection. If you were here on Good Friday, it was a great time together as we focused on the cross and, and uh, we even had that visual opportunity to nail sins to the cross. And it's, you know, it makes us think, you know, did something that happened at the cross 2,000 years ago really do something about us today? I mean, think about this from a completely atheistic or secular viewpoint. This is kind of crazy. That we would put or pin our entire anticipation of where we will be in reality in heaven based on something that happened on a cross 2,000 years ago. Did that really pay for sins? We say it did. The Bible says it did. And Jesus says... I'll prove that I paid by the receipt of the resurrection. If you walk out of Best Buy with, let's say, $1,000 worth of electronics and that beeper thing goes off, you'll find you'll have friends instantly. Uh, they'll want to know something, and what do they want to see? They want to see your receipt. Did, did somebody pay for this stuff? If you did, you're good to go and the resurrection is that receipt that what transpired on the cross, God the Father punishing his son for our sins put upon him, that really happened because the resurrection really physically happened. Well, this is a few months before the cross, and so we think uh, back over the events of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, right? Um, on Thursday night after Jesus had... Uh, talked with the disciples, teaching them, done the Last Supper, Passover meal with them. Judas goes and betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, leads the soldiers to where Jesus was praying there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he is arrested without cause. He is unjustly uh, tried by religious authorities, which is actually illegal at night, and then tried before Pilate, the Roman governor, during the day. Pilate sends him to uh, Herod, who's kind of a local king thing, and he just makes fun of him, sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, even though he truly doubts that Jesus has done anything wrong, but because of the peer pressure of the crowds yelling, crucify him, he condemns him to death, and they take him to the cross. And they crucify him. And the disciples have no idea what's going on. They had spent three, three and a half years following him and had become convinced he really was the Son of God. He really was the Messiah. They had seen his miracles. He, had, he started it with turning water into wine to keep a wedding party going. He made the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. He raised to life his friend Lazarus, who had died, along with Jairus' daughter and the, the grown-up son of a widow, which should have been some clue, some hope. They had watched all of this, 
And now they had just watched the Son of God, in their mind, die. It made no sense. Somehow they had to think this is the most terrible failure. These last three years were the terrible waste of time, and now on top of that, they have a terrible fear. If they just killed Jesus unjustly, who would be next? The closest friends, the disciples, they were known. On the way down the mountain, Jesus had said, don't tell anyone, Peter, James, and John, and by this moment, I suppose they're glad they didn't, because it was all falling apart. Turn ahead to Matthew 28. If you think about where the disciples were Thursday night, Friday, and Saturday, We're told in Matthew 26, verse 56, the disciples all fled that night in the garden when Jesus was arrested, except for who? Peter. Peter, who at least followed into that courtyard during that illegal nighttime trial, but he failed three times, denying that he even knew Jesus. And John came out of hiding, at least to be at the foot of the cross. We find him there in John chapter 20, where He's there with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus says from the cross to take care of his mom. But the disciples are hiding behind locked doors. Even the night of the resurrection day, that's where Jesus finds them, behind locked doors because they're afraid of the Jews. So they're confused, they're afraid, but everything changed because of chapter 28 of Matthew. Read the first seven verses. After the Sabbath, that's Saturday, at the dawn of the first day of the week, that's Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Another heavenly thing, huh? The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then quickly go and tell his disciples. Go from don't tell to tell. It's time. Tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And the angel says, now I've told you. So don't tell until I've been raised from the dead. Well, now he says, okay, now go tell those disciples. I have raised, Jesus has raised from the dead. So it's Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they're interesting stories to look at their background. Luke tells us that another woman was actually there with them, Salome, uh, the mother of James and John. And so these three brave women are there at the tomb, and they're the ones who have actually watched it all. While the manly disciples are in hiding somewhere behind locked doors... (laughs) Uh, these three women have seen it all. Go to the previous chapter, 2755. They watched the crucifixion from the distance. In verse 61, Mary and Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. What had they seen? 
The previous verses, they had seen Joseph come and, and from Arimathea and ask for the body. John adds that Nicodemus, remember the one who asked about being, who found out about being born again? Nicodemus and, and Joseph together wrapped the body of Jesus that is, these women are watching. They put it into Joseph's tomb and they roll together, they roll this stone, and they have saw that all happen. Then they wait on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, because all the Jews would religiously rest. But Sunday morning, they make their way to the tomb. Uh, Matthew only tells us they went to look at it, but Luke and others say they actually went to look and to anoint Jesus' body with spices. The spices that they used were, number one, kind of a deodorizing thing for a decaying body to preserve the, and, and make it you know, you could be there. And the other is that it was a way of showing honor to someone that you loved. So they came to do that, but what do they find? A violent earthquake, an angel, the stone rolled back, and dazed guards. The tomb that they had left shut and wondered how they would open it to do what they wanted to, was now open. And a bright, blazing angel who came down from heaven was there. Now, uh, perhaps this earthquake, they maybe heard the earthquake that early morning, like the angel had a hard landing or something. The guards are mentioned only by Matthew, actually. They were so afraid of what the sound, the angel, they are like convulsing, trembling in their dazed state. It seems that the guards and the women were there at the same time. So imagine them kind of waking up, and now there's angels, and you kind of have this awkward moment between women desperately hoping it's true and guards desperately hoping it's not, and they are their witnesses. The contrast, really, we have in our world today between those who believe and those who don't. And the angel says, don't be afraid. It's the first thing angels always say because they're rather scary. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. You're at the right tomb. (laughs) You're not directionally challenged that you were here Friday. This is the spot. I know you are looking for Jesus whom was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. This is like the ultimate I told you so moment. He had told the disciples, we said last week, there were actually three times recorded in each of the four Gospels that Jesus says, the Son of Man must be killed and rise again. The Son of Man must be killed and rise again. Three times he said that. And then to the three disciples in the first passage you looked at before, today we, he said, I'll rise again. Then you can talk about this. Did the women hear Jesus say he would rise from the dead? I believe they were there as well, back in verse 55 of the previous chapter. They were the ones who followed Jesus from Galilee. Luke talks about how these women were part of the, 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 the group, the team, even though it's focused on the teaching of the disciples, the women were there. And so they probably heard it too. And so the angel says, he told you? The stone was rolled away, of course, not to let Jesus out. 
the resurrected Jesus who was given life by the Spirit of God and everything came alive into this new and glorious form of the physical body. He didn't need an open tomb to get out. He can pass through walls. But the stone was rolled away so that they could see it was empty. And uh, that's what the angel says. Come see the place where he lay. They had witnessed Joseph and Nicodemus take the body, wrap the body, place the body, push their stone, and now the angel is giving them a tour of an empty tomb. Never was nothing so wonderful as that moment. Never was a miracle so great that showed nothing because the tomb was empty. John adds the detail when he arrived later, the Apostle John, that the linen wrappings that they had wrapped the body with were, were folded and laying to the side. You know, that's, a, that's an incredible detail because if, as the lie would be told, that someone had stolen the body, if you're stealing a body, why would you unwrap a decaying body before you took it? Definitely not stolen. Go quickly. Tell his, you saw it now. Go quickly, tell his disciples he has risen and he's gone ahead of you, where? Into Galilee. There's a plan, there's, a, there's an appointment. Later on we see that there was a certain mountain that Jesus had said, that's where we're going to meet. They must have known which mountain in Galilee this was. So go tell his disciples now. It, it, it's all public, it's all, tell everybody. He's risen from the dead, He's going to meet you in Galilee. So, verse 8. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples, but they're interrupted. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. <laughs> His main point was, keep your appointment. You know, go tell the disciples. That's what the angel said. That's what I'm confirming. And yet they had just seen Jesus. So they were already afraid and filled with joy on their way. They had just talked to an angel. So that's why there's fear. You don't usually see fear and joy at the same time, do you? Afraid but filled with joy. They were afraid because they had seen an angel, but they were joyful because of what the angel had said. Their greatest wish or dream was true when the angel said he's risen. And so they're running to tell the disciples, probably thinking, now where are the disciples? I don't know if they knew where they would be hiding out. Did they do a big hide-and-seek in Jerusalem? It was their plan. They didn't have texting. They had to go look. Suddenly, Jesus met them. I don't know what your Bible translation might say. Behold, or greetings, or hail. Um, this, this greeting word is actually a form of the word joy. And so it's not like greetings. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's more like surprise. <laughs> it's, it's this happy greeting. Guess who? <laughs> and they clasp his feet. Think about that. They didn't see a vision. Feet. 
Feet are physical. They, they, Jesus in his risen state is physical and yet in some amazing way supernatural. He would appear later on into the room with the disciples later that day while the doors were locked. And he just passed through. He's, so the glorified body, by the way, it's the glorified body, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. The glorified body of Jesus tells us a lot. It's physical. It's you. It's personal. It's conscious. You, you talk. And yet it's supernatural, not having the same limits and definitely not mortal it'll never die never have surgery never have cancer it's forever but they clasp his feet and worshiped that's how we sang this morning he's god it's true we have the receipt matthew mark luke and john so it's a great thing to sometimes read through all of them because everyone ends with the death and resurrection, the price that was paid, the receipt that's shown. Each in their own words, four receipts of the resurrection. And then the rest of the New Testament, you read the letters of Paul and the others to the churches, guess what they're always talking about? Guess what they're always founding everything on? It's on the resurrection receipt. Everything depended upon the resurrection of Christ. No one dare say of this book that it's a good book but deny the resurrection because it is not a good book it's based on lies unless Christ rose from the dead you really don't have a choice of saying it's, it's, it's alright there's a lot of good things in it no it's all based on a lie or it's based on the truth don't be afraid go tell my brothers and Galilee, Jesus says. So just keep going. Just You saw me. You know it's true. Go tell the disciples now. It's, we're not hiding this. And the whole world needs to know. But what's really interesting and sad is what comes next. Again, Matthew is the one that lets us know. There are some who in the face of facts will deny the resurrection. While the women, verse 11, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. They just woke up from their days, right? And they reported to the chief priests. That's the Jewish religious leaders. They reported everything that had happened. So they were telling the truth. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, here's your script, his disciples came during the night and stole them away while we were asleep something that would be capital punishment for a guard normally. If this report gets to the governor, they said, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The, 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 the guards knew the body was gone. They knew the disciples did not steal it. But they go to the, who? the religious leaders Devise a plan, money, here's what you say, we'll keep you out of trouble. Lies, pay off, cover up. What motivated the religious leaders? Why would they do that? Wouldn't this be the best news ever? Pride and control 
using religion is far too common. It hasn't stopped. In the Gospels, it was always the religious leaders who opposed Jesus most directly. They tried to kill him earlier in his ministry years. They were the ones who always were trying to trip him up. They hated him. They illegally tried him. They had him whipped and eventually convinced the crowd to yell crucify. They were threatened by Jesus, who claimed to be God, because they wanted to be God to the people. It was this proud control that religion can give people. It was, they didn't love the God they claimed to serve. And I think it's really important that we understand the difference between being religious and being believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, this, this issue of religion versus Jesus, really, is common today. Let's take a look at some of the contrasts. This is a big one. The authority of religion itself, and I'm using it kind of the religion in quotes, but what people think of religion is it's based on man's ideas. And that's why there's so many versions, so many religions, because each one kind of has their own ideas. It's based on man's ideas. The viewpoint of Jesus is that he was a good man or a prophet, because you can't really just hate Jesus and be religious. So you've got to give him something. He's good. He's a prophet. Humanity, their view is that mankind is basically good, except, of course, we all know the really bad, the Hitler type of people, but except them and mass shooters and that kind of thing, people are basically good. And then you get to this issue of, what about, is, is there an afterlife, is there heaven? Well, yeah, and there's many ways to get there. Uh, just try to be good or follow some religion. That would, be, that would be good. That's a good thing to do, to try to help get you to heaven. Sound familiar? The authority of what we know about Jesus Christ is that God gave his word, and it's reliable. And that this has authority, not man's ideas. And so when we're kind of wondering what something means, let's keep going back to what does the Bible actually say. And so the person of Jesus then becomes clear because it's clear that he claimed to be God. He's either a liar or he really is God. Come in the flesh. And what about humanity? This is really important because there is no, there is no salvation cure if we don't get the diagnosis right. The fact is that we are sinners. And so, heaven is only given to those who understand they're sinful and that Jesus Christ solved their sin problem. It's an entirely different scenario. So, whether the religion has one of the ism names, whether the religion has a building with a cross, if their, if their assumptions are on the left side... It's just religion. Or else the Bible is true, Jesus is God, man is sinful, and heaven is only available through Jesus. 
And the good news is it's true, and it's, that's why we've got to tell. That's why we have to communicate this. In the final verses of chapter 28 is Jesus telling us to tell everyone. And then the 11 disciples, because by this time Judas, who betrayed Jesus, has committed suicide. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted or hesitated. Uh, possibly there were more than the 11 disciples. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, one time some 500 people at once saw Jesus. This could have been the time, and there could have been some doubt and hesitation among some of them. So they meet. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the triune God, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always, Jesus promised, to the very end of the age. Acts 1.3 says there were some 40 days in which Jesus appeared before he ascended to heaven. I would take it this is probably towards the end of that period of time. This is now taking place in Galilee. So Jerusalem is in Judea, the southern portion of, of what was called Israel then. Then above that was Samaria, and above that was Galilee. Sea of Galilee, uh, many of the disciples, all the disciples that are remaining, those 11 were all from Galilee. Jesus grew up in Nazareth of Galilee, so they're going kind of back to their home area. And somewhere late in these 40 days, before Jesus goes back up to heaven, he gathers his disciples and says, here's your job. I've told you I'm going to build my church. I'm going to create a family of all those who I will live with forever. To do that, I must die on the cross and rise again. But that message has to go to everyone because eternal life is only found by faith in Jesus who died on the cross and rose again. So now he says, when I say I'm going to build my church, I'm going to do it through you. And here we are 2,000 years later and know why we're here? Because Jesus Christ is still building his church and he's still doing it through the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he explains how it works. He says, go and make disciples and I'll tell you how. This is sometimes called the Great Commission. There is a form of the Great Commission. Jesus talked about this more than once in those final days he was on earth as the resurrected Savior. But this is one really good, clear, concise way of understanding it. In that statement that we've just read, there is one main verb or command. It's make disciples. Disciple means learner or follower. It's someone who has believed in Jesus and is now following him obediently. That's what we want to be. If you want to be called something, it's a disciple of Jesus Christ. Make disciples. How do you do that? Jesus tells them how. And so there's one main verb, and there's three things called participles, if there happen to be any grammarians or English teachers in the house. But it's three ways of saying how something is done in the main verb, and it's through going, teaching, baptizing, and teaching. Going, first of all, means you got to go and tell people that Jesus 
is the only way to have eternal life. So that's evangelism. The word evangelism is the word of, form of the word gospel. Tell them the good news, the gospel news. Jesus died for your sins and rose again. It's the only way to have eternal life. Tell somebody. That's why we're here today. Someone told you who told somebody, who was told by somebody else. And then baptizing is water baptism, which is an outward way of showing others what you have decided about Jesus, that you've put your faith in him, a public testimony. Teaching is then what we gather together to do week by week in addition to worship and prayer. We teach so we understand and can explain the importance of obeying Christ. So if you, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, I just want to ask you kind of how you're doing on these three parts of the command. Are you making disciples or just making a living? Raising families, all parts of it, because discipleship is something that, that is embedded in everything we do. Are you making disciples? If so, who are you going to tell? Who, who, who knows you better than maybe any other believer in Christ? Someone you work with, someone over the fence, somebody in your family, someone you can invite or tell or start with praying for. Baptism, have you made that step of expressing publicly, I'm a believer and I'm following Christ as a disciple. We would be so happy as, as pastors, if you talk to one of us, we'd be happy to arrange when you could be publicly baptized. We do that several times a year. Teaching, are you being taught? On a regular basis, do you hear the word of God so that you could explain it and pass it on and really reproduce another follower of Jesus? Are you involved in teaching, learning, sharing, encouraging discussing the Word of God. Where could you do that? We'd be happy to help find you a place to land and grow in your teaching. We want to be a disciple-making church. This is, this is what we do. This is what we're about. And then Jesus said, it won't be easy. In fact, in our study last week, back in chapter 16, he said, it's, it, to be my disciple, you've got to take up your cross. There'll be sacrifice to be involved in this. For some of you here this morning, everything we've talked about is review, and you've been encouraged maybe just to go through what you, you know and, and solidify it, but for others, this could be new truth or something you're still thinking through. <clears throat> so in these closing moments, I would be remiss if we didn't take this opportunity for, for me from the scriptures to tell you how you can have eternal life. If you, if you have any uncertainty whether you would be in heaven if you died in an accident today or whatever. How can you know that you have eternal life? It all depends on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Basically, two big issues. First is we must admit that we are sinners and we deserve God's judgment. That's the painful pill to swallow, to say, I don't deserve heaven. Because, you see, heaven is holy and perfect, God is holy and perfect, and zero sin can go there. It's not how good you are, but rather the reality is that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we all fall short of that standard, and so we have to personally come to the place where we acknowledge, I admit, I don't qualify. And suddenly that's a level playing field all around the globe, and that we deserve God's judgment. The penalty or wages of sin is death. For God to be just and holy, he must punish all sin. Only death punishes sin. So 
he has all, all of this must die eternally because God is just, except wonderfully, he's also loving. And so in his perfect justice, he had to punish all sin. But in his perfect love, he came personally to bear the punishment for us. So the good news is that if we place our trust in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, paying our penalty, and rose again, the receipt, then we will have eternal life. Do you understand it? Have you done it? Have you placed your faith in Christ alone? We often uh, share John 3.16. It's part of a little bit larger paragraph that is helpful for us to understand. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Now that sounds like a strange introduction. What is that about? Jesus was talking about something that happened in the time of Moses. Numbers in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, chapter 21. Moses lifted up a snake on a pole because uh, the people had been sinning against the Lord and he allowed snakes to come as a judgment and they were, they were being uh, bitten and sick and dying. And they cried out to God and God told Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a snake out of brass, bronze, and put it up on a pole. And then tell the people something very simple. I'm providing this snake on the pole for you to look at and if you look at it, you'll live. And that's what happened. They looked and lived. And Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, remember that's his name for himself, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. He's talking about the cross. Isn't that a terrible way to compare yourself? I'm like a snake. He's the holy, eternal Son of God. He says, I'm like a snake. How could that be? It's because on the cross, Jesus Christ was bearing the awfulness of all of the sin of all the world. So he says, though I'm holy, I am bearing all of that evil on me. The rest of the verse says, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Believe. What do they have to do to look at the... They just have to look at the snake in belief. They didn't have to do anything. It was a matter of looking and trusting, believing in that snake. And then, John 3, 16, the eternal life because of the cross ended in the receipt of the tomb, empty. For God so loved the world, that's all of us. He kind of wraps it up with a bow. He loved the world so much, he gave his one and only son, the one who died and rose again, that whoever believes in him, the one who died and rose again, shall not perish, that would be hell, but have eternal life, that would be heaven. So what do you have to do to have eternal life? Know that Christ died to take your punishment and believe, put your, which means to put your faith in. In other words, not believe that, but put your trust in. Like sitting on a chair, you're not sitting on a chair by looking at it, yet you sit on a chair when you put your whole weight on it. That's what it means to put your trust in Christ is what are you depending on? So that is our question, your question. What are you trusting in for eternal life? Let's summarize it with basically two choices. you trusting in yourself or Jesus Christ. If you're trusting in yourself, it could be good. You know, I, I do, you know, do a lot of good things, but yeah, I sin too. 
I do a lot of religious things, or I was, I was baptized as a baby, or I did this, or I've gone through this ritual. Are you going to put your trust in you? Or in Jesus, the one who died for your sins and rose again? So that is, that's the opportunity you have. That's the good news. And I would just invite you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again, that you would do it today, Easter Sunday morning. 2022. Just ask if we could bow our heads at this time. and um, I'd like to lead you in, if, if you've never put your faith in Christ, this is how you could express it. You don't have to, you don't have to stand up or come up or, or, or say anything out loud. This is, God knows your heart. He sees everything that uh, is going on in your mind. And so if you, if you are understanding your sin and God's complete sufficient payment through Jesus who died and rose again, this is what you could tell him right now, just in your own words, your own heart. Lord, I realize I'm a sinner and don't deserve heaven. I realize that I actually deserve your punishment eternally. But I understand that Jesus, your eternal son, paid the penalty for my sin on the cross. And he rose again. And so right now I am, Lord, putting my faith in your son's death and resurrection and that alone for eternal life. Thank you for forgiving my sins and giving me eternal life. Amen. If you express that to the Lord. We would love to know that as a church. If you want to fill out a connection card or use the QR thing to comment to us or email some, one of the pastors off of our website or whatever, we would love to be in t- touch with you and help you somehow grow uh, as we could in your faith in Christ. Thank you for coming, worship team.